following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter fish peddlers. I'm Scott Pearson, and this is my daughter, seven of nine and three quarters. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode four, The Day the Geek Stood Still, and we'll be talking about Star Wars Special Editions, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, movie soundtracks, and Firefly. Star Wars Special Editions. Even as we speak, George Lucas is going door-to-door, asking people if he can have their uh, copies of DVDs and Blu-rays back so he can make additional changes to them. We're revisiting this because in our last episode, we talked about Seven's first viewing of Star Wars. Since then, she's had her first viewing of one of the special editions. So we're going to talk a little bit about all the myriad changes. Let's jump straight to one of the more noticeable changes in the film, and that's the appearance of Mose Eisley. Seven, did you notice uh, any changes right away when you were watching the movie? Yeah, definitely. I think the first thing I noticed were the little Jerboa kangaroo rats hopping around. <laughs> yeah. I liked those. This was one of the changes that I noticed and liked. He really, uh, he, he put a lot more people and aliens and all sorts of stuff going on in Moe's Eisley, and it made it fit the line of dialogue a little bit better, because when Obi-Wan has the dialogue about a more wretched hive of scum and villainy or whatever it is, and he, he kind of talks up Moe's Eisley as being this really you know, gritty place that's just crawling with all sorts of nastiness. And in the original film, when you finally get to Mos Eisley, well, it seems like there's, you know, one or two people walking around. <laughs> it's, it's, it, and in the repopulated version, in the special edition, you get more of a sense that there, it's a bustling spaceport. So that was a good change. Of course, soon after they arrive in Mos Eisley, you get to the most infamous change. Indeed. Because who shot first? Han. Han shot first. We all know it. We all know that's what really happened. And he has messed with this several times. In the first really special one, which was in 1997, Guido shot first, and it was ridiculed. (laughs) And then in 2004, he started messing with it again in that one. It's like they almost shoot each other at the same time, but Guido's a little bit faster, and yet he misses a guy three feet away from him. Which of those was the one you saw? He was just sitting there, and then Guido like, was like, pew, and then it went <laughs> over his head and his thing, and then Hans was like... <laughs> what was your reaction upon seeing that? It was weird. It looked weird. I don't think anyone watching the movie in its original format reacted that, to that scene by thinking, oh, Han is really out of line there. I think everyone reacted, he got the drop on the guy yeah. who would have killed him. You know, he was fixing something that wasn't broken. The next big change is the appearance of Jabba. How did you think that looked? I don't know. It was pretty strange after just having seen the original. I see him walk out there and I was like, this isn't supposed to happen. <laughs> and then I got even more confused and at the end, Han walks away going, you're a wonderful human being or something. And it's yeah. just like, that's Okay. <laughs> and it uh, it's a pointless scene because the dialogue in that scene just replays what he's the discussion he's had with Greedo. And so it doesn't add anything. Here's a scene I wonder if you remember. 
in the original version, there's a bit where Han goes chasing a bunch of stormtroopers, and then eventually they come to a dead end, and he comes around the corner, and they're standing there. But in the special edition, instead of there being a dead end, there's like a whole huge room of hundreds of stormtroopers that he sees. Oh, I remember that. What did you think of that? It just seems sort of comical. To me, it seems like it's too much. It's kind of realistic that he runs into a group of a dozen stormtroopers and he can just turn around and run away and they can still escape. But there, when he runs into yeah, a giant thing a of... Uh, yeah, then it doesn't seem like he, they would be able to turn around and get away. Lucas seems to have this tendency to think, well, if this scene is good with 10 objects in it, it would be even better if it had 110 objects in it. When he started doing the prequel films, there's always thousands of ships fighting as yeah. opposed to just dozens of ships. To me, it just becomes a big visual noise because there's just hundreds of things zooming all over the place. Hard to keep track. Yeah, just piling on more isn't always better. One of the scenes that I liked was adding in Biggs. When they're on the uh, rebel planet, Luke runs in to his friend Biggs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's a nice touch. In the end, since you saw the two films very close to each other, because, of course, remember that I saw the original film in 1977, and then I saw the special edition 20 years later. <laughs> so, but you watched Star Wars and one of the special editions just a couple weeks apart, your first viewing of each. So, comparing directly, what did you think? Which one, do you, do you have a preference? It's so hard because, like what we said, like some of the cities, they needed more, mm -hmm. more activity. And other things that were okay, he added more activity <laughs> to, which didn't need that. Yeah. Um, it's hard to choose between one, really, yeah. because, of course, the... They're the little, like, Jerboa kangaroo rats are, 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 really, are. a really nice touch to yeah. have those little things hopping around. And it's nice to have more spaceships coming in out of a spaceport. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to choose the original just because I grew up with it and I watched it in that format for decades. But there are a couple of those shots that really were nice additions to the original film. And I think that if he had just been a little bit more subtle in the changes he made, he would have really improved the film without making it so distracting for all the people that have seen it in its original form. Of course, all the people that are seeing it in that form for the first time, they're going to have a very different experience. So we probably mentioned before on Generations Geek that we're pretty big Lord of the Rings fans. Oh, yeah. Like, really big. How many times have you watched The Lord of the Rings? Peter I can't Jackson's even. Ever. I can't even. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've read, how many times have you read The Lord of the Rings? I most, more often than not, I'll read bits of it every day. And I, I can't remember how many times I've read it. It's definitely in the double dig digits. Certainly there are plenty of people who've read it many more times than I have, but huge fans for a long, long time. So as soon as we heard that they were going to make a live-action Hobbit film, we were just over-the-top excited. And I immediately was like, we have to go to the midnight premiere. There is no way you're keeping me away from this. We are going. And my dad was kind of like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about how it's a long movie and it starts at midnight. And I was just thinking... I did not care. 
wow, that's going to be late for me, an old cranky man. <laughs> um, so but you talked me into it. We've been we have been reading about it and looking at all like the extras and inside things and um everything. And of course, we've been afraid ever since we heard that it was going to be made into three movies at three hours each. Seems long, so we're kind of frightened. Mostly yes. because each each of the Lord of the Rings books had one movie. And however happy I would be if they had gotten more than one movie, you you have to, at that point, you have to use, like, every single scene and yeah, it's, quote it's from the book. And, and, well, and, and more. You have to use more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, like, pull things out of the appendices and all sorts of random things that weren't actually written all the way out in the book, and then you have to interpret them for yourself, which can be really dangerous. A lot of my concerns, unfortunately, were realized when we saw the movie. Uh, but first, why don't we just why don't you just mention your first impressions? How did you like it? Overall, what, what I your... thought it was really, really good. I mean, there were definitely definitely a couple scenes that seemed long, and I was fidgeting. And it was really confusing for me because once I heard there were three movies, I thought the first one must end once they get to Rivendell. Because if they're going to make it into three movies, that's going to, they get so much farther than Rivendell. <laughs> and I don't understand. They seem to really have to kind of stretch this first one. One of my main concerns with Peter Jackson is his lowbrow sense of humor. I think it was emphasized more in The Lord of the Rings than in The Hobbit. Uh, well, I don't know. He had to have dwarves sitting around belching. He also had them clean up all the dishes real nice and set the table up just like they did in The Hobbit. Much of that scene was very faithful to the novel, but then he had to put in a big belching scene. Well, it wasn't that big. It was just like one, one shot. I said this as we were driving home. I can like a belching scene as much as the next guy. And the example I brought up was from Elf, where <laughs> Will Ferrell <laughs> chugs down an entire bottle a, of a soda. A two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola and then belches for about 30 seconds and then goes, did you hear that? And it's, and it's hilarious. It fits in with the movie. It's got a little extra something brought to it. The did you hear that is so ridiculous <laughs> that it's a hilarious scene, and I have no problem with that. But in The Hobbit, you get this image of Peter Jackson sitting there thinking, it's funny because they're dwarves and they're belching. And it's <laughs> like, well, no, that's really not that funny. It's kind of lame. I still think The Hobbit was better than The Lord of the Rings because compare it to how many times Gimli was used for like yeah. things like landing on him and wargs piling up on top of him. And That's one of my pet peeves about Lord of the Rings is that they used Gimli as the butt of all the jokes. So, getting past the belching scene and moving into the rest of it, I thought some of the changes that were made were unnecessary. Some of the changes were good. The general idea that he has of expanding the book with some of the stuff that was taking place off-camera, so to speak, in the original novel, is kind of an interesting idea, because Tolkien did have a lot of stuff going on that didn't take place with Bilbo and the dwarves, because Gandalf was occasionally leaving them, and he was being involved in a whole other adventure with Sauron, who was coming slowly to power during the time of The Hobbit. And one of the impressive scenes, we're going to try to stay relatively spoiler-free in here, but there was a scene in Rivendell involving some of the characters from The Lord of the Rings. I won't say who, 
for people who haven't seen the movie yet, he pulled a line of dialogue for Gandalf out of a little snippet of a scene that is in the book Unfinished Tales about what Gandalf was up to with backing the dwarves and their fight against Smog the dragon. That was a good use of additional material to help flesh out the film. But then some of his other things, going back to the lowbrow sense of humor, when they encounter the trolls, there was a bunch of snot jokes. By a bunch, he means really only a couple. We could quibble about how to number them, but I really don't need a bunch of mucus flying around to be entertained by the scene. That scene was perfectly entertaining as it was. Well, none of the scenes from Lord of the Rings need any, any more humor. If you have the patience to read through the books and actually understand what's happening all the time, you should be able to understand the humor and like... <laughs> <laughs> the original books are not without humor. And Peter Jackson is imposing his style of humor on top of talking, and it's an awkward fit. So overall, I had a very mixed reaction. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as Seven did. I really liked it. I wasn't sitting there hating it or anything, but there were times where I was just like, "Why is this, what is this scene, and why is it going on so long? And there were other times where I was distracted by the changes, because the changes didn't make any sense to me. Some amount of interpretation and modernization is to be expected when you're working from a book that is from decades ago. But this book has been popular all these decades because it's good just the way it is. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it got a little crazy. And I also think that he fell prey to the dangers of 3D filmmaking. And we actually didn't see it in 3D. Not yet. Not yet. We will go back and see it in 3D so we can compare. All movies are shot in modern times at 24 frames per second. He shot this at 48 frames per second. It's supposed to give a very vivid effect, having all that extra information projected at you. But we saw the two-dimensional 24 frames version. But there were definitely scenes in there that were made to play to the 3D and I find some of that distracting. What did you think of some of the scenes? Do you, you know um, what I'm talking about, right? What are some yeah. of the scenes? Well, there's one scene where Bilbo slips and is hanging onto a cliff, but then they couldn't quite reach him. So Thorin climbed a little ways down the cliff and threw him back up. And then Thorin started to fall. So then they had to catch Thorin. And then they like had like you know that awkward 10 seconds where they're trying to lift him because he's a heavy dwarf and they can. And they finally like get him up there. <laughs> yeah, so and it was just a little—it was a little bit too much to have Thorin fall, like because it was the same thing twice in a row. Yeah, it's like you didn't need that. We don't want to be too spoiler heavy here, but was there a favorite scene for you? Something that really stood out? It's so hard to choose because I've been watching the cartoon version of The Hobbit forever, and so I was so looking forward to this, and all the scenes are so familiar to me, and the songs and everything, I can just sing them word for word. The songs aren't exactly the same from the animated version, yeah. but both the animated version and this version have songs that are based on the lyrics that were in the original oh, I was, novel, I was, so they're so, I was so sad. One of my favorite parts is when the orcs and the wargs like, trap them in the trees, and they sing 15 birds. Ah, oh, yeah. Like, 15 birds. In five fir trees, and like they're singing, and that's one of my favorite parts. And they didn't include that. <laughs> that was okay because that's just a little part. It was just like one of the things I really liked as a kid. 
we should talk about one of the strangest parts. You were asking me about Radagast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was so strange because they had Radagast the Brown a lot more in the film than they do in the book. In the book, I don't think he's was, just kind of referenced. Yeah, I he's think. referenced. They're like, actually... Radagast the Brown is a wizard. And then they had him so much more. And it was so weird because I was like, why does he seem so familiar to me? Throughout the entire movie, he just like, I was like, my dad must have read me something. I must have read something, seen something that I don't remember because everything I, everything that is happening right now, I remember. The strange explanation for this is that Radagast's behavior is incredibly similar to the behavior of Merlin in T.H. White's The Once and Future King. Which I didn't think of right away. But then we were driving home and I was mentioning all the things that seemed familiar. And my dad was like, that sounds like Merlin from The Once and Future King. And it, yeah. it's crazy. He's so, it's like the exact same thing. Yeah. And I felt that uh, they took Radagast just way over the top. There was quite a touching scene, though. There was some nice work was, with him. Yeah. It was fun seeing Sylvester McCoy as Radagast. Sylvester McCoy played the seventh Doctor on Doctor Who. And oh, yeah. So that was a great uh, sort of genre thing to have uh, Doctor Who show up as a wizard in Middle Earth. But the character was just too eccentric. Yeah. And too much a riff off T.H. Uh, White's Merlin. It was just kind of strange. Another addition that, that could have worked, I guess, is similar to what he did in The Lord of the Rings with one of the Yurikai. He's creating a character, an evil character, runs throughout the film for another sort of story arc. And in this one, he has the goblin Azog that he creates. It is pursuing the dwarves throughout the film. And this is the goblin that killed Thorin's grandfather. Yeah. Now, when I say create, I don't, I don't mean that he made him up entirely. Azog is mentioned in the Hobbit novel uh, only twice because... He's actually, he, he died way in the past. In the flashback battle scene that they show in the movie where Thorin gets his Oakenshield name, in the original writings, Azog died in that battle. And that's covered in some appendices in The Lord of the Rings. You don't get all that detail in The Hobbit. So, again, this is where Jackson has used outside material to flesh out what he's uh, showing in the film. It's a big change to have a character that's dogging them the whole time. I don't know. What, what did you think of that character? I didn't think it was as effective as the sort of like leader Urukai was in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But it was it was all right, I guess. It didn't it didn't bug me too much. Yeah, it was it was okay. You know, in the end, that was largely my response to the entire film. It was it was yeah. okay. It was okay. There's more stuff in the first film of The Hobbit that I that I dislike than what I dislike in the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. So it's a very mixed review. But if you're a Tolkien fan, if you saw the Lord of the Rings, if you're fond of the Lord of the Rings, you're really going to want to see The Hobbit. But go in with realistic expectations. This first one, a little bit off. I hope the remaining films are a little bit more tightly edited. I really thought it was quite good. For, for what they did with it, I thought they, that it was quite good. Okay. So in the end, a mixed review, more of a thumb up from Seven, less of a thumb up from me. You're going to have to check it out for yourself. When you think of your favorite movie, often you also end up thinking about the music in that movie. Music brings so much to movies. So we wanted to talk a little bit about our favorite soundtracks. 
what are some of your favorite soundtracks? The Lord of the Rings. I want to add a footnote to that. I am also very, very fond of the soundtrack to the animated Lord of the Rings. That is by Leonard Rosenman, who uh, also scored Star Trek IV. And there are some very similar themes in Star Trek IV to some of the little uh, music phrasings that are in Lord of the Rings. And it's kind of fun. We are, of course, honoring all copyright. We're not going to be playing any clips of the soundtracks while we talk. So you just need to uh, imagine them in your head or pull them off your own shelf of CDs and and put them on while we're uh, talking about them. What Um, else? The Hobbit sounded very impressive. When I bought the tickets online ahead of time, it got me a free download of one of the tracks from the Hobbit soundtrack. And I was listening to it and it was very nice music. And then it got to the little refrain that's this sort of like key Hobbit theme in that's developed in Lord of the Rings, and it really had a great emotional impact they to come hear back, that little it's, bit again. There's this one little thing that they use almost as a chorus, not quite. It's just like yeah. two measures. And it first, it's in the second song in the Fellowship, and they come back to it over and over and over again, and by the end you're just hearing up, but it's like, and it, oh my god. <laughs> And what else? What other soundtrack? I think we have to give a shout out to Wizard of Oz. Yes. Classic, obviously. And we have the extra super special fancy pants edition that's like three or four CDs. I can't even remember. So it's got the complete score and outtakes and everything. That's a lot of fun. What else? Raiders. Obviously no discussion of soundtracks would be complete without discussing the soundtracks of John Williams, who's done Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, just about everything Lucas and Spielberg have done. Uh, One non-geeky soundtrack is Empire of the Sun. I think perhaps Spielberg's best film, and it's a World War II movie, and the uh, soundtrack to it is just phenomenal and beautiful and moving. What other soundtracks for you? Encounters of the Third Kind. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, another John Williams score. Very moving, very fun. One of the most recognizable five notes in the history of cinema. I also want to give a shout out to Jerry Goldsmith. What comes to mind immediately is the Alien soundtrack. And uh, Seven hasn't seen Alien yet. Nope. Or it's rated R. It's a little bit creepier. But uh, I think she's ready for it. Not a fan of getting scared for fun. But you're, you're loosening me. up, though. Because you're watching uh, The Walking Dead now. But it's not that bad. And you're playing... Like, uh, compare that to Paranormal Activity. And you're playing... Big difference. And you're playing Halo. That's that's just slightly creepy. (laughs) But it's also very similar to some of the Alien franchise films. I suppose. I also want to give a shout-out to Jerry Goldsmith's soundtrack for Outland, which is another movie that you haven't seen yet. Nope. Again, it's rated R. It's kind of a Western in space, very nice soundtrack, and that has a very nice special edition CD soundtrack out. That's fabulous. One of the great things that's going on lately is there are a lot of very, very special editions being put out. I just picked up the amazing Star Trek, the original series collection. Yes. La La Land Records. (laughs) 15 CDs. Essentially, every note recorded 
for the original three seasons of Star Trek. Four little booklets in there on the music. An amazing package in a slipcase. Only 6,000 units are made. So if that interests you, rush out and get it right away or it's going to be gone. We've name-dropped a bunch of movies and their soundtracks. You want to talk a little bit about what it's like to listen to the soundtrack on its own. Like in The Lord of the Rings, it's sort of a dark trilogy. And so lots of the music is really sad and dark, but it also, like, there's this one song at the beginning, when everything is happy, <laughs> that just so embodies the Shire. And I yes. love it so much. So it's called Concerning Hobbits. It's the second song, again, on The Fellowship of the Ring. And I love it so much. And every time I listen to it, all I can think of is the Shire. And it makes me so happy. That's the great thing. When you listen to a soundtrack, you relive the movie. You relive the emotions of those scenes. What I'll do most of the time is have, like, my favorite song, like Concerning Hobbits. I'll always have that. Um, on like my iPod or whatever, um, but I won't have the rest of the soundtrack because it gets to be too much and I don't listen <laughs> to it. Like I have a couple of Star, I used to have a couple of Star Trek themes on my iPod, which is now dead. That's why I'm using passwords. What do I say? They'll be on there. <laughs> so I'll have yeah, I'll have a couple of Star Trek themes. And my friends are listening to it and I listen. They're like, "What is this?" And I look down. Are you serious? Star Trek music? What is wrong with you? <laughs> but it's awesome. So it that's is why. awesome. I've only listened a little bit to the extra super special fancy Star Trek collection I got, but it's so much fun to listen to. So many, so much of the music done for television in the '60s and '70s has stood the test of time. So you know, like you have themes to Mission Impossible or Hawaii Five-O. They're just Ooh, Hawaii Five-O. Yeah, these are just incredible pieces of music. Just creative, fun, catchy. Uh, adventurous music that just can't be improved upon. And, and it, although someone like the uh, composer on the new Battlestar Galactica series, he's done marvelous work. That is some amazingly rich music drawing on a lot of sources. I could own all of that. What about Doctor Who? Doctor Who has had pretty impressive That's fun songs. music. Yes. Everyone loves that. Me and a couple of my friends who are also Doctor Who fans, we're all in choir last year together. And so every once in a while, I'd be like, okay, you do this and give them, because there are like three main parts in the Doctor Who theme. So I'm going to be like, you do this, and they start doing it, and then I tell the other person, you do this, and then I'd go, and it sounded like really awesome. I often listen to the soundtrack from the animated version of The Hobbit where they're singing, like, all the songs from the book. So they're singing, like, 15 Birds and that song that they sing when they're coming down on the Rivendell. For the animated film in that time period, it was a very enjoyable, very likable soundtrack, the music and the songs. It uh, holds up really well, I think. I can just, like, I can hear, like, the first note and I can sing the entire rest of the song because I listen to them <laughs> so much. Yes. Well, in the way that uh, kids often do. That was listened to over and over and over, over and over and over and watched over and over, over, and, and, over, over and over and over and over. Uh, which kind of brings us full circle because we're talking about The Hobbit again. Yay! <laughs> and uh, I look forward. It's on my mind. Yeah, yeah. I want to see it again. When we were getting ready to record the show today, I solicited questions, comments, shout-outs, whatever, from uh, our listeners and Amanda. You know who you are. 
brought up Firefly as being a favorite show of hers. That, Which is another show that has an amazing soundtrack. Yes, great use of music in that show. And uh, so we'll talk about it a little bit. I watched Firefly uh, not that long ago for the first time. I, it was one of those things that for some reason I didn't start watching it when it was originally on. And of course, sadly, it wasn't on very long. And so I didn't watch it until years and years later, uh, just like in the, within the last couple of years, watched it on Netflix. And then... Uh, seven, I think you discovered it kind of on your own, didn't you? Yeah, I had just, I'd heard so much about it, and everyone, the entire fan base was like, this TV show was so good, this my entire life, I can't think of anything else. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. <laughs> and so, thanks to Netflix, I could just go and be like, Firefly, okay. And like the first five minutes, I was just like, I understand <laughs> why they love it. I also just really adore the show. Strangely, we have not gotten around to watching uh, Serenity yet. We were talking about this just earlier this morning. We should give a shout-out. Yeah, we have to give a shout-out to the GNT show. We were the guest co-hosts on that show Sunday morning, the 16th. And it is not as family-friendly by any means as we endeavor to be no. here. So if you're listening to our show, please go ahead and go listen to our guest appearance Without your children. But without your children, or, you know, if they're teenagers, yes, but you're going to want to, uh, you're going to want to know, yes. and you might want to just skip right over the Ask Dayton segment. There, there's, that, that got awkward. I'm not going to say what it was about, but that's where the ratings really uh, changed. <laughs> but anyway, shout out to the, to Nick at uh, the GNT show and everyone else there. Thanks for inviting us on. That was fabulous. When we were talking about Firefly and Serenity on there, because uh, we were being mocked that we haven't watched Serenity yet. So we're going to have to make time for that soon. The first time I watched Firefly, I watched it like all in a couple of days. Only I wasn't aware there was only one season. <laughs> I knew it ended very quickly, but I thought there'd be at least two or three. So I got to like to the last episode of the first season, and I was like, oh, cool, what's the next one? And then I was like, but there has to be a next one. There is no and then, next one. And then it was just like, it, my heart just broke. <laughs> but there is the movie, so we've got that like, to look forward to. Oh. And uh, at least we still have uh, Nathan Fillion on Castle, because he's incredibly geeky. He's pretty it's cool. It's nice. He's very cool and very funny. Definitely, if you're on Twitter, and you're a fan of Firefly. If you're not following Nathan Fillion, you're insane. You have to follow him. He's really awesome. He's very funny. He's very He's interactive very awesome. with his fans. It's, uh, it's great stuff. Very awesome. Well, that's all we have for this episode. But before we go, remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from an experimental rocket car in the eighth dimension. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. And please follow Generations Geek on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and check out our website at generationsgeek.com. Thanks for listening, and come back again next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Danny.